0: Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of New Books Network. I am your hostess with the mostess, Lee Pierce, rhetoric professor at SUNY Geneseo, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Kara Finnegan. I, I've been a long time fan of Kara's. I was reading Kara's stuff uh, when I started well, maybe about midpoint in grad school. I wasn't smart enough to read it when I first started. <laughs> so it's really awesome today to be interviewing yet another book from Dr. Finnegan. And the title is Photographic Presidents, Making History from Daguerreotype to Digital. And we uh, the, the book really travels through a large expanse of history. Uh, Lincoln's portraits, Lyndon Johnson swearing in, George Bush's reaction to learning about the 9-11 attacks, and throughout all of them, Dr. Finnegan argues that photography plays an indelible role in how we remember and define American presidents. Throughout history, presidents have actively participated in all aspects of photography, not only by sitting for photos, but by taking and consuming them. But the twist in this particular book is that it's not a book, as Dr. Finnegan says, about the institution of the presidency, it's also about how the presidency can teach us about the history of photography. And Dr. Finnegan ventures um, from a newly discovered daguerreotype of John Quincy Adams all the way through to Barack Obama's selfies, which all of us remember, and they tell the stories of how presidents have participated in the medium's transformative moments. Technological developments not only change photography, but introduce new visual values that influence how we judge an image. And at the same time, presidential photographs as representations of leaders who symbolize the nation sparked public debate on these values and their implications. I'm very excited today to welcome Dr. Finnegan slash Kara. Are you there?
1: I am. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to chat. So tell us more about yourself, where the book came from. I mean, clearly you've done a ton of archival work, um, and then maybe some of the major themes of the books, major major arguments, and then we'll dive into the four parts uh, that lay out sort of a a chronology of the president slash visual medium that you go through.
1: Sure thing. So I'm a professor of communication at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Um, I've been uh, on the faculty at Illinois for about 20 years, and I've essentially been a scholar of the history and rhetoric of photography uh, for my whole career. So this book um, really kind of emerged from two places. Um, First, it emerged from research I did on my previous uh, book, which was called Making Photography Matter. And in that book, I was really interested in the question of how people viewed photography in the past. So today, if I want to know how, you know, you responded to looking at a photograph, I can ask you because you're around and you're alive and you can talk to me. Uh, people from the past can't do that, right? So what I was interested in in that book was how can we look into Uh, various archival resources to try to figure out what people thought about photographs of the past. And one of the chapters in that book was about a photograph of Abraham Lincoln, a daguerreotype, which was the first kind of photograph uh, uh, to appear after photography's invention in 1839. And this daguerreotype of Lincoln was made in the 1840s when he was a young beardless congressman from Illinois, but it wasn't made publicly publicly Uh, Available to people, it wasn't discovered. We might say until 30 years after Lincoln's assassination, and it was discovered in the mid 1890s. And so I got, I came across this um, basically this public conversation about Lincoln and his this photograph, and I couldn't make sense of it at all because it was people were saying things like, looking at this portrait of Lincoln makes me realize that the Civil War was just. And I thought, okay, what? Like, how is that possible? So that project was really about not so much the photograph or any photograph. It was really about how people talked about photography. So all of that was a kind of precursor for me to really realizing that, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there about uh, presidents and political communication and the way presidents especially contemporary 20th and 21st century presidents use photography to build their political image and that kind of thing. But what I came to see was that there were many, many more stories out there about presidents and photographs besides kind of the familiar famous ones. So that was kind of one of the first ways I got into the project. The second way I got into the project uh, was, um, through my teaching, I started looking really carefully at the photos that President Obama, after he took office in 2009, uh, began to put on a social media site called Flickr. And they created essentially this real-time archive of images of the president that were being made by his official photographers. And presidents have been doing this for a long time. Presidents have had official White House photographers for many decades now. But the new thing was that they were putting them online basically in real time. And so thinking about Lincoln and realizing there were all these other presidential stories out there about photography and then trying to make sense of what Obama was doing and and really coming to realize that it seemed really different. Those two things together made me think, you know, there's really uh, the potential for an interesting book here and a book that's that's about presidents, but it's really about using presidents as a lens to understand the history of photography differently.
0: Yeah, and the values piece I think is so it's kind of like a trio because there's also this whole third because really I mean what you notice throughout the book it's kind of like the sub theme is that the way a president thinks about their visual medium very much mirrors like like uh, their opinions about what a public is and then the way that the public. Treats their photography and their images of a president very much mirrors their relationship, how they imagine. So it's all about like the imaginary. And since you look at such a large expanse of time, it's cool to see how you can almost measure the national imaginary of president to subject or president to people or however you want to put that over time through all of the different images and the and these vast archives you have of people's letters and their thoughts. I mean, you have some people, you know, some of the early presidents, especially who kept very um, meticulous diaries. You have their thoughts about what a visual image means. It's really fascinating.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things I've kind of always known because I've worked on photography for a long time now, but I hadn't really, I think, put together in my mind until this project is that there's we think of photography as one thing and photography is not one thing. It's a medium that we have lived with now for more than 180 years. And like any medium, it changes, right? So like we used to watch movies at the theater. Now we also do that on Netflix, right? So we know that a medium can be the same, but also change. And photography is the same way. So at each moment, like you said, those visual values, what the culture comes to see as how photographs should look and how we should interpret photographs; those change over time as the medium changes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was really fun to kind of put all my archival research skills um, into play to try to figure out what are what are where are the places where we see presidents linking up with those um, those photographic moments. You know, where are those moments? I say where they're becoming photographic, and then at right. the same time trying to put myself into the headspace, you know, if you will, of the culture to try to figure out what is it that they're understanding and valuing and making sense of about photography at these different moments. Yeah, and do you want to take us through
0: I know we talked about there's so much in this book. I mean, you cover an amazing number of examples and the visual images are really helpful. But are there any in particular especially so so the book is chronological past to present, which made a lot of sense to me. I think it was cool to see the evolution. Do you want to mimic that and maybe talk about one of the early examples that you think best highlights the work of the book?
1: Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned um, John Quincy Adams uh, and uh, he was one of the early presidents to be photographed. And the oldest existing photograph we have of a president today that you can go see at the National Portrait Gallery at the Smithsonian is in fact a daguerreotype of John Quincy Adams. Uh, was made in 1843. He was at the time a former president, uh, and uh, he was also a sitting congressman from Massachusetts at that point because he left the presidency and then joined Congress, which is not something people do anymore, certainly. Um, but Adams uh, is a really interesting character, not only because he's kind of this first guy that we still have the image of, but because he kept a really detailed diary his entire life and he wrote about his experiences essentially becoming a photographic president. He wrote about being invited to go see this this new technology called the daguerreotype, and he uh, wrote about what he thought about how they looked. He said that he thought that they were um, beautiful and really visually interesting, but he did not think that they were good likenesses, that they would produce a good likeness of a person. And what what was great about Adams was that at each of these moments where he's going to sit for daguerreotypes, he's, he's describing the experience. So it's almost like we're going with him to the daguerreotypist. And he says, I went here and they had me do this. And I sat in this room and it was like a greenhouse because it had big open windows to let the sun in. And they aimed a camera at me and the camera looked like a telescope. And so what you see with Adams uh, kind of as our guide is he is trying to figure out what this new technology is. And then he's trying to figure out how to make sense of it. And the challenge for Adams was that most of his daguerreotypes did not turn out well. Sometimes they just literally failed because the technology was new and um, it was very touchy. It was hard just to get a good image. The first few years of photography were just people working really hard to get anything to appear on that glass plate. But then after that, then it became um, a question of, okay, When Adams talks about it failing, is it failing because it just didn't turn out any kind of image or was he just not happy with what it turned out? Uh, And so there were times when he described uh, daguerreotypes of himself uh, as uh, all hideous was one of the phrases he used. Mm. Another phrase he used was um, too true to the original which I love oh. because you know we we all you know even though we all have like 4000 pictures of ourselves on our phone now we all look at our picture and go like oh my god do i really look like that you know and and Adams was doing the same thing in in the 1840s That's so funny. he was sort of he was kind of a fun guide to that era because on the one hand he's probably one of the most famous Americans in the United States at the time. He's a huge celebrity. He's a former president. He's literally a child of the American revolution. He has been sitting for portraits for his entire life, busts, paintings, prints, and then photographs. So he's this really visually experienced elite person, right? But at the same time, he's trying to figure it out with the rest of everybody else. Like what is this thing? Um, Why do people want me to be photographed? And do I want to do this? Um, and ultimately, Adams, you know, Adams dies in 1848 uh, when the daguerreotype really is, is hasn't quite come into its own as a real art form yet. That really comes a little bit closer to 1850 and the early 1850s. Uh, but so what Adams is doing is he is trying to figure out what is the value of this medium to, um someone like me, who's really deeply invested in sharing my visual image with the people of history, right? I'm a historic figure. How will people look back on me? And his conclusion is that the daguerreotype, that photography isn't really a very good mechanism for uh, what he called transmitting the memory of a person to the next age. So he's really interested in his legacy. Now, what's fascinating is the existing daguerreotype that we have, that first existing image of a president, is phenomenal. And I encourage people to Google it. If you just Google John Quincy Adams National Portrait Gallery, you will find this, this photograph. And it is like everything you would think he would want to, to be seen as he is. He looks stern. He looks learned. He's like, you know, kind of sitting um, next to a table with books on it. He appears like he is this, you know, kind of intellectual um, head of state. Um, but at the same time, something about that just wasn't good enough for Adams.
0: Yeah. And I, do you, do you see kind of throughout the book, a, a bit of a, I don't know if trade-offs the right word, but between presidents who think of visuals as needing to establish a legacy and presidents who see the visuals as a need to be more immediately available to the people. Cause it sounds like there's almost like you can kind of, not categorize the presidents, but you can put them on a spectrum of people who were like, no, this has to be the right photo that sends my legacy to people. Because you notice, for example, that Trump was much more controlled in his circulation of photographs than than Obama had been, whereas Obama really put everything out there. And I think, and and I think that that's not just like a new thing. I think there's almost like a trend of different types of presidents and how they think about whether photographs are for posterity or whether they're for creating immediate connection with their electorate.
1: Especially, yeah, when we move into the 20th century, and then we get to um, this period where the photograph becomes a more immediate you know, kind of real-time form of communication. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this this tension really plays out in uh, in a pretty consistent way over time. So yeah. on the one hand, you have this sense of, um, I want to be represented for history in a particular kind of way. And I want to be captured, right, as this um, active leader, as, um, you know, a masculine person, right, which is very Mm. much tied to the presidency and our notions of the presidency in in terms of gender. And then also, um, this desire to essentially not be made a fool of. So so there's, you know, when we get to the late 19th, and then especially in the early 20th century, when cameras become more portable, and you can print newspaper and magazine photographs very easily, then it's, well, anyone lurking around with the camera could take an embarrassing picture of anyone. And the president certainly doesn't want that. So there, there was a lot of anxiety in the late 19th century about, uh, so-called camera fiends, which mm. was a great phrase. And now, you know, now we would talk about paparazzi, um, a little bit, uh, you know, that would be our term, but that idea of, um, you know, the president can't just be out and about having cameras aimed at him all the time, because who knows what they'll capture, right? And then Mm -hmm. when we move into the 20th century, that becomes even more possible with the rise of smaller cameras, like 35 millimeter cameras, where you have uh, the era of the so-called candid camera, which is really invested in the idea of making close up, you know, more intimate photographs of people, more snapshots of people. So, what you have, I think, throughout that whole period is this this kind of spectrum uh, attention between needing to get your image out there and wanting to get the image that you are cultivating for yourself out there, and at the same time right. being really anxious about the ways you can't control your image. And then by the time we get to the social media era and by the time we get to Obama, there you have, it's really playing out very clearly. So on the one hand, Obama is, the White House is very consciously editing and curating a visual image of the president that seems behind the scenes, right? It's giving us photos of him. Uh, we're getting some insights into him as a person. Uh, we're, we're, we're seeing you know, what it's like behind the scenes working at the White House um, uh, and that kind of thing. But at the same time, that's a very carefully controlled kind of image that's being put out there by the White House. But then once those very same images go out into the world in a world of uh, viral images, Photoshop and memes, then they become kind of released into the culture and the president can't always control what happens to them. So this tension, Mm -hmm. particularly now in the era era of social media, between control and interactivity, um, is, is really profound. And it does have, um, it really does have origins, uh, in, in those earlier periods of photography, where once you could start carrying a camera around in public, you know, to a certain extent, all bets are off.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I hate, I hate to jump. I keep wanting us to jump ahead just because the book is so great as a comparative, but it also, you also kind of have to, to work through, I think, the visual archives from past to present to see the, to see the observations about the present. So it's it's kind of like as an interviewer, I'm stuck because I keep wanting to jump you ahead to social media, but it's like, no, no, we haven't done, <laughs> we haven't done the history yet. You gotta do the history work. So let me discipline myself and bring us back to, so we have talked about Adams a little bit and the daguerreotype. Did you want to talk about anything else around that time period before we jump to maybe mid early, mid 19th, 1900s?
1: Yeah, I think, I think just one thing to recognize about that earliest period of photography, uh, uh, particularly in the United States, was that th- that the daguerreotype was uh, a one of a kind visual object, uh, and it had several descendants that were also one of a kind uh, visual objects. And so, what I mean by that is, I I put chemicals on a plate, I put that plate in the camera. You know, John Quincy Adams sits for that daguerreotype. And then that's the only one of those. And so that Mm. plate was, was in the camera, in the room with him when it was made. And later you develop the ability to reproduce, you know, in a mass reproduction way uh, photographs. And so things change. And, Mm. and that, that sense of the daguerreotype as a kind of individual object is important, I think for a couple of reasons. And one of those is because it was, it was, the first time people had seen a photographic representation of themselves or their loved ones. And so it had this reality to it, right? That like, oh, this looks like, um, you know, my, my sister or my loved one. But at the same time, it also had this kind of wondrous capacity. I talk in the book about this uh, distinction between fidelity and wonder And the daguerreotype was literally wonderful in the sense that when people use that term wonderful, they literally meant full of wonder, that it was just this new, uh, amazing thing that you could have this representation of yourself that was in this completely new and different way. And I feel like I think in some cases we lose that. And even when we're looking at images of daguerreotypes like online or even in my book, we lose that because we don't get the sense of like what it felt like in your hand and how big they could mm-hmm. be or how small they could be or how they have little cases, you know, that would protect them. So so that period is really different from what comes after, because once you hit the later 19th century, you have the ability to print photographs on paper. You have the ability to mass produce photographs. So I can have a portrait made and we can sell it or give it to everybody, right? Multiple, multiple copies of the same thing. So that shift in the late 19th century um, makes photography more widely available. Um, It also makes it more uh, uh, increasingly affordable. And photography itself, cameras, change so that regular people can afford to have their own cameras. So by, uh, by the time William McKinley, uh, who is president, uh, in the late 19th century, is going to the Pan American exposition in Buffalo, New York, where, where, um, he will be shot and he will die a few days later, um, by an assassin that event people are carrying around their own cameras and making their own snapshots. And so you have a really different way of thinking about what it means to picture a president when I can go to a public event and bring along my camera and maybe have the hope of catching a snapshot of this person. Um, so that period becomes really... Um, really interesting because you get the rise of um, what in the book I call visual news. So mm. you have the ability to not only tell a story, but to visualize the story. And so in the book, I talk about the McKinley assassination a- as a moment where you see a number of interesting things playing out because it would seem like when a guy is shot in public and there's hundreds and hundreds of people around and many people at the event would have had cameras, it seems like you would have been able to get an image of the shooting, right? We can think about the Kennedy assassination as our analog for that. That's a little more recent. People mm-hmm. know there was the Zapruder film. They've seen right that moment, um, the very I actually, moment when, when Kennedy I actually got don't shot. Know,
0: I don't know that everybody will know what the Zapruder film is. Will you tell them? I mean, do you want to wait and talk about that later, or is this just a reference you're making right now?
1: No, I can, I can, I can really briefly describe it. So yeah, because yeah, I, so I just so can't so take for granted guy, that everyone knows. Yeah, yeah. There was a guy named Sapruder who was there with many thousands of other people in Dallas uh, in eighteen, uh, sorry, in nineteen sixty three, uh, when John F. Kennedy uh, was assassinated, and he happened to be making a home movie, and um, uh, so essentially inadvertently captured. The moment of the shooting. And then the film, which came to be known as the Zerbruder film, uh, stills of it were reproduced in magazines of the period. It became really a kind of forensic um, piece of evidence about the Kennedy assassination. So when McKinley is assassinated in 1901, we don't have that. But what was interesting to me about looking at the media conversation at the time was that people sort of thought you should. (laughs) <laughs> and so they did this really interesting thing where they were like, well, if if someone had been there with the camera and if they had had the presence of mind to capture something and if they, the light would have been right and if, 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 then we could have had a picture of the assassination. But because, <laughs> but because we don't, we're going to photograph literally everything else in the universe in Buffalo related in any tangential way to the shooting. And we're going to put that on the pages of our newspapers and magazines. And so in the book, I talk about uh, the last photographs of McKinley and everyone is claiming they have the last photographs. They're labeling the photographs they're publishing as the last photographs. Mm -hmm. Um, um, I'm not really interested in knowing which are actually the last photographs and I'm not even sure it's possible to know the answer to that, but this idea of, uh, that photography by 1901 is so timely that you should be able to cover an event like this as visual news um, really pushes people uh, to think about this idea of the last photographs. So it's kind of this morbid moment where, where what I saw was the public belief in the visual value of timely photography is literally kind of butting up against the capacity of most photography to actually chronicle uh, a shooting. So even if someone had been able to do all of the things, you know, the ifs that I mentioned earlier, it probably would not have been possible to actually capture an image of McKinley uh, being mm. shot. But but there's such a desire for that to have been the case that to me, that was really interesting That that McKinley becomes this figure who represents this moment where we can really be chronicling um, and thinking about presidents of photography in a, in a completely different way.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think not to like totally nerd out here, but it's, it's fun to have other rhetoricians on the, on the show because we, we, we're actually, I actually don't have as many rhetoricians on the show as like literary studies, story history. I mean, you know that because you know the game where we're kind of like a small subset. But what's cool, especially about the McKinley chapter, but I think also you touch on it, even as we get into the the present with Kennedy and then Obama, is that at every turn, there is this belief that because we now have the photographic technology, we no longer need the rhetoric, right? Because we'll just know. We'll just know and we'll have the evidence and it'll be right there in a photograph. And so now we don't have to debate it because... Well, we have the photograph, but at every turn you keep showing like no. We keep having to have rhetoric because it doesn't go away because of the photograph. It just shifts the kinds of arguments you can make. And so in the McKinley case, it's sort of a classic example of using quality to make up for quantity, which you know, which is a which is a a rhetorical move that people make all the time. If you can't win on quality, you switch to quantity and vice versa. And so because they don't have the moment, and who knows what happened even if they did. And then even with Kennedy, they have the moment, but it doesn't change the need to, that what they don't have now is the shooter, right? So everybody, so they have plenty of actual, the actual literally moment of death, but what they don't have is the shooter. And so it was just interesting to me because the, the question of rhetoric keeps popping its head up, no matter how advanced the technology gets, and no matter how much people believe we'll now we'll have the truth because we have the technology.
1: Yeah. I think your point about quality versus quantity is exactly right on um, in the case of McKinley. And, you know, more generally, um, you know, one of the challenges I had when I was thinking about structuring the book uh, and you know telling it in this kind of chronological way, where I have a chapter on a president and then I have a little kind of shorter interlude where I say, okay, and then here's what was happening in the history of photography at that time, right? To give people some context for the medium. One of the challenges I had with that was I didn't want it to come off as technological determinism, right? That, mm. that the technology changed and then therefore all of these things inevitably happen because you're right what you have is is the rhetoric so the technology changes but what that does is that changes people's understanding of the capacities of the medium right. and their expectations of it and those visual values so it, that's exactly right that at every moment it's like oh we, we can think about photography this way now, and then that actually changes the ways that we demand our presidents come before the camera. It changes our expectations for what it is we want them to do uh, right. and how we want them to behave. So by the 1920s, you have regular photo ops where a couple of presidents like uh, Coolidge and um, Harding. Are really, really solicitous. You've got film cameras now too. So you have the movies, right, and newsreels, and you've also got photojournalism. And they'll come out and like pose for basically anybody for any reason because yeah. that they have realized that this is an expectation that they have to satisfy now to be shown as a popular figure, right? So then the political calculus definitely comes into play at that point.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, like I said, you do a great job of, I, I think, avoiding technological determinism while still acknowledging, like, it does change argumentative dynamics. It changes what counts as evidence. It changes how, yeah, our expectations. So, but that doesn't mean that it resolves any of those. It just brings new ones up and makes other ones not as important. And then those will show back up later. And <laughs> I mean, it was a great book to read. It was almost like a detective story because so many of these major photographic moments coincide with these mysteries of national national events that nobody will ever know the answers to.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, one of the reasons why I, I wanted to focus on this kind of technological change idea is because when you have these moments of change, right, you have these new visual values that are coming into play because the, the medium is changing. But at the same time, people's previous expectations and norms don't go away, right? right. So, so you know, when Adams is, is complaining that the daguerreotype won't make a good portrait for the ages, he's drawing on and leaning on the norms of the age of painted portraiture. And, you know, later when Herbert Hoover um, doesn't want to pretend to be candid for the candid camera that emerges in the 1930s, he's drawing on, you know, like his norms are the old school norms and he's not willing to adapt to this new way that people want politicians to be pictured. So Mm -hmm. those moments are also the places of clash where you see really interesting stuff play out.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, like I said, and, and we're just kind of focusing on the photographs. But the other things that go along with this book are different. Uh, like, you found these niche, these kitschy art magazines that only had like two issues printed, and you read advertisements in the local newspapers about the daguerreotype about sitting for portraits. And so we really get a glimpse of what people thought of like how the how they were marketed, how people thought about them and the diaries of of a lot of these presidents who wrote their intimate thoughts about it. yeah so there's a lot of things supporting the photo- the photographs that also make this a really rich archival work as well which of course we don't we don't read those cuz they kind of take a while but for the person reading the book it isn't just photographs it's also a lot of supporting evidence about how the, what these photographs meant to the public and to the presidents sorry yeah, my cat was- my cat is meowing very loudly <laughs>
1: It, the era of uh, Zoom cats. I. It's cool true, Zoom cats. I know. Yeah, yeah. But you know, the archival part is really fun for me because as I'm as when you're thinking about photography as this cultural practice, it's so important for me to try to in, embed myself in all of these different elements of the culture in these different periods, and to try at least in some way, to the extent that you ever can, to yeah. to figure out what people's experiences would have been like. So. Um, I mean, if I have one uh, kind of addiction, I think as a scholar, it's that I would just swim around in the archival stuff all day long, and eventually you have to, you know, uh, travel up to the surface and figure out what you want to make of all of it. But, um, but that richness, um, uh, I hope comes across for people. And I hope people find it relevant, because it's really, really fun to try to pull all those threads together. I love that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Do you want to jump ahead to a more contemporary example?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I mentioned a little bit about uh, uh, President Hoover, and and I have a chapter on Hoover and Roosevelt uh, in the 1930s, where they're wrestling with uh, the this idea, right, that that tension between wanting to be pictured and, and control your political image and your visual image, but at the same time, always running into this anxiety that it might not be communicated the way you want it to be. Um, and and so I, I, really I leap ahead <laughs> quite a, a number of decades to uh, to the rise of social media because to me that seemed really to be the next big thing
0: mm-hmm. after
1: that moment of the rise of 35 millimeter photography. You know, um, the digital age is still very young. I think we feel like we've been in it for a while and we forget that um, it, it really uh, isn't the case. Uh, and so when Obama comes along and you know begins to uh, really use social media as a visual vehicle for communicating ideas about his leadership ideas about his character um, that's new to the extent that it's being sent out uh, you know uh, over social media and made available to people uh, basically in real time what I was really interested in because you know one of the challenges of writing about uh, you know, Obama was still president when I started this project and and mm-hmm. by the time I finished it, he was not. But one of the challenges about writing about the recent past is there's so much to try to figure out and make sense of. and so you have to focus in some way. And what I decided to do was really just to focus on this Flickr site, which was an innovation. It was uh, Flickr uh, for those who aren't familiar, is essentially a web uh, a social media site for photographers primarily. Um, But anyone can use it and you can post your own pictures. uh, A lot of archives and libraries use it now um, to share images more widely with the public. And it's sort of a defunct social media platform to the extent that it's not in anyone's imagination really um, anymore. But what Flickr did for the white house was become a a way to visually get around the mainstream media. So they could use their images. They could, you know, release images kind of almost as their own press releases, uh, but they could release them to Flickr, and they, they would, they would get out there into the culture, into the public sphere, um, um, almost instantaneously. And then, Mm. um, they almost became in a way, you know, a Flickr album would come out from the, the the administration would post a new album of images, you know, at the end of the month or after a big presidential event or speech. And then the next day you'd have news stories about, oh, here are all the images they posted on Flickr. So they became really almost um, they became uh, these really powerful visual ways for the for the Obama White House to communicate with people. But Flickr also did all these other things. And I talk about this more in the book. Um, you know, we can think about the uh, Flickr made Pete Souza, Obama's chief White House photographer, famous. Um, and basically Flickr made him a celebrity unto himself because he became part of the story of the visualization of Obama. And he did a lot of interviews. And, and um, uh, when Obama left office, he's written a couple of books that highlight his uh, photographs. So Flickr created uh, celebrities. It created famous images that, you know, when I talk about like the Situation Room image, or if I name other famous images, people can see them in their mind's eye. So it became very powerful that way. But I also talk in the book about how Flickr did other things that we didn't necessarily see right away. Um, uh, One of those things it did was it actually, that group of about 6,000 images that they curated very carefully and posted to Flickr over eight years, um, really is a kind of archive of the rise of social media photography. Mm-hmm. Um, we we see selfies sort of emerge over the course of the photographs that the Obama white house was posting. We see um, uh, there's a few pictures of Obama referencing memes, you know, he's posing in a photograph in a way that rep- references a meme that was going around popularly at the time. So when you look at that group of images, I think, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, we're going to see it differently than just, oh, this is a group of photographs um, of Obama.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'd I'd heard a lot about Obama as the Facebook president. So it was cool to see this from a different medium, which I hadn't really, I mean, I sort of knew about Flickr, but I didn't know much about, I mean, I read the edited that you contributed to an edited volume, if I'm not mistaken, on the Obama presidency, which I think you discuss a little bit, but that was the first time before this book that I'd heard anyone talking about. And then I think Pete Souza played like kind of an important role in in mocking the, right. he he was sort of a, a Trump, a visual Trump critic. So there, yeah, this was a yeah. really neat chapter. And I didn't know a lot of this. So it was fascinating to read.
1: Yeah. And, you know, as I was finishing the book, um, uh, uh, the initial research of the book uh, was when Trump was taking office. And I sort of thought, oh, I'm writing about I'm writing about um, these images and, you know, we're going to have a new president who's a very different president and no one's going to be interested in this anymore. And then Pete Souza started essentially using <laughs> images he made during the Obama years to troll President Trump on Instagram almost daily. And so, you know, thanks to Pete, he sort of kept those images in the news. But he also what was interesting about that was his trolling. um, Uh, and and really pointed critiques of Trump because he was now a private citizen and he could do this. Right. Uh, uh, They also kept Obama visible at a time when Obama was not visible. You know, when uh, when Obama left office, he really disappeared. He went underground. He wrote his book. He really didn't come out publicly much uh, until the 2018 uh, midterm elections. And then very much, you know, with his book in 2020 and um, the 2020 election. So Souza sort of, what was really interesting was that those photos kept Obama literally in the public eye in a way that was constantly poking at Trump. Um, And so you always had this visual difference, whatever Trump Mm. was doing, um, you know, unorganized, chaotic, uh, wild, over the top, Sousa could always counter with an image of Obama, right? Whatever political mm. issue Trump was, in Sousa's view, screwing up, he could counter with an image of Obama, you know, behaving in a more appropriate, leaderly, you know, um, uh, presidential way. And so, um, so that archive got activated almost immediately, right, by Sousa himself, which is also a really interesting part of the story. That's really it, interesting. Yeah, and it tells you, I think, a lot about the way that visual politics today is, um, you know, we often talk in, in, in rhetoric circles. And when we talk about presidential speech-making and, and public discourse, we talk a lot about, um, you know, the political back and forth and, um, you know, the way that, um, the political battle battle, you know, it's a battle of words, but, you know, we're also in an area era where we really have a battle of images. And so, um, the, those images being used in that way to counter Trump even though it was often you know it was meant to be pointedly humorous is also part of this bigger picture of how uh the visual politics of everyday life and especially of political life are always contentious now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's pretty fascinating. You you think you you think going into this you could only tell so, you can only do so much with with the photography as an angle, but it it turned I mean I can't even imagine all the things you left out of this book that's that's what I was thinking by the end. I wasn't thinking about the what you included. I was like, man, you could write seven volumes on this you you could have a book for every president, probably,
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, and it's a kind of a stampede through history and and it's not, <laughs> I like it it's not the, yeah, it's not the usual presidents either, you know I think no people, yeah, that you know, was really interesting mm mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not a coffee table book with attractive photos of attractive presidents. It's it's doing something differently than that. And hopefully that makes it interesting to people and maybe a little unexpected. Um, But yeah, I've been joking with people that the book isn't called photogenic presidents. It's called photographic presidents.
0: Oh, that's funny. That's very funny. <laughs>
1: Good. All right. Well, we are coming
0: up on time. So speaking of Stampede through history, talk about Stampede through your book. Do you want to uh, highlight any, maybe another case study or any more arguments or tell us, if is there a fun new project you're working on? You, we could move, we could move past the book too, but this literally just came out, right? May, 2021. So this
1: is brand new. Yeah. Yeah. How about okay. the presses? Um, but one thing I can just tell people, um, because it was a fun thing that I learned and kind of got to d- dig into is, um, you know, photography was invented in 1839, uh, George Washington, our first president died in 1799. So he died 40 years before photography was invented. And just kind of on a whim, I thought, I wonder if there's anything photographic about George Washington. And it turned out that there is. Um, and, uh, people made daguerreotypes of paintings of George Washington, and they made daguerreotypes of busts of George Washington. Sometimes those busts were um, posed in a studio with little children hugging the bust of Washington and looking up at him lovingly and adoringly. And so what that told me was that, you know, in in this period in the early 19th century, Washington is still the icon of the nation. His image is still really, really important. Um, And photography needed Washington to a certain extent, I decided, to kind of establish its own authority and its own value. And so if you could, you know, quote unquote, photograph Washington, that was a way to capture an image of the nation's icon. And then that was a way to show the value of photography, um, for capturing the images of, of other, uh, leaders and elites as well. So that was kind of a fun thing to discover because I went into that, um, not really expecting to find much and I ended up realizing, oh my gosh, I could dig around in this stuff forever.
0: Hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually, this is one of the few books I think I finished thinking I wish there were more in this book. Speaking of which, this book is incredibly accessible. I think I maybe I told you that already, but I, I could like reading, I was like, this introduction is so short and coherent and to the point. And these chapters are so, you, you broke them up so that they are, even though the, you, they have relationships to one another. So once in a while you have to refer back to a thing you were talking about earlier. That's like a tiny, in fact, I think, I think I like it because it kind of builds the threads, but it just made, I could pick it up. I could read for a bit. I could put it down with like a nice coherent unit. So is there anything you did or is that just kind of how you write? Thank you for saying that, because
1: I worked really hard um, to make this book um, uh, readable uh, and uh, different from the, the more traditional academic books that I've written before. Um, uh, I really wanted this book to be a book that would appeal to a broad audience of people who are interested in presidential history, U.S. history more generally, politics, photography, Um and uh, I hope it's still really of interest to academics who are studying these topics as well. Um, but given that it's really the first book to take this broad scope of history and think about how presidents met photography, you know, at all of these different moments, I wanted it to be something that a lot of people could pick up and enjoy. So I, I wrote really consciously with that in mind. Um, I structured the book in ways that um i thought would make it more accessible and digestible so rather than having long long chapters with lots of different sections i decided to break it up as you said so there's um there there will be a chapter that kind of focuses on a president and a specific moment in much more detail and then the next chapter will be a kind of little interlude where i say okay so now you've learned about this era of photography here's some things you need to know about what was going on with photography so that when we get to the next president, the big mm-hmm. president chapter, you'll have a handle on it. So my idea was to kind of think of myself as sort of pulling the reader along through, you know, that thread through history in a way that would never make them feel as though they didn't know enough to be reading what they were reading. Um, yeah, and so that's if you a great found way that, to put it. If you found that successful, that makes me hugely happy because that's something that I really, really um, thought a lot about. And I talked a lot with the press about it because they really saw the potential in this book as being a book that a lot of different people would would read and hopefully enjoy. So um, if that's playing out for you, I'm like super happy to hear it. <laughs> oh, yeah. My,
0: my, my grandpa is really into presidential, he's like 97 years old and he loves reading presidential biographies. And he, I always tell him to listen to my podcast and he can't because his hearing aid, I don't know, something about the, the tones don't, it, he has a really hard time hearing it. And But this time I was telling him about this one. He said, I actually think I might want to read that. And that's the first time, which, again, I mean, I I, I interview a lot of black women authors. And so some of this comes down to just like he's a 97 year old white man. So I don't I don't want to indicate that that's like the marker of a great book. But it was at least exciting when I described to him the layout and showed him the table of contents for him to be like, I'd read this because normally it's very much like this looks all like some academic theory. And so much of our new books listeners are either grad students, I find, who don't have a lot of time to read, unfortunately, even though that's the thing they should be doing a lot of right now, because they're learning how to do their own writing. So that makes us an excellent model for them. But also a lot of our listeners are just, you know, the, the, gen, the generally educated reader, quote unquote, and some of these books, while I love them, I, I am respectful that you'd have to really trudge through a lot of deep theory that isn't necessarily available to everyone. So that, that thing you said about, I want everyone to have enough to, to move on with the book, but not also kind of bog them down in this section of the book really comes through in the writing. And it it's not, I mean, it's certainly not the only way to write or the way everyone should write, but for anyone looking for kind of an accessible model of what academia can look like, I think this is a really good one.
1: Yeah, I had one of the manuscript reviewers uh, for the press um, who identified himself, and he's a very well-known now emeritus uh, professor of photography history, said, "Um, this is the kind of book that I would also want my brother-in-law to read. And my brother-in-law is someone who's really interested in uh, American history and who listens to a lot of history podcasts and who knows a lot of things about presidents, right? And so I sort of, you know, in my mind, I kind of kept that idea in my head as I was working, especially on the revisions that, um, yeah, that the scholar said this is valuable for scholars but also I can imagine a specific kind of reader. And that helped me because when you can imagine that kind of reader, it helps you think a little bit more about the ways that you're uh, writing and sharing information.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it really comes through. And again, I can't thank you enough. And I just want to let everyone know. So the press who works so hard on this book is University of Illinois. And we'd like to shout out our university presses because These are not like your big Simon & Schuster type publishers, right? They are small labors of love. The profit margins are narrow, if any. And they put a lot of work into bringing some – with peer review and things like that. So we just want to give our kudos and thanks to the University of Illinois Press for bringing this book to being and for supporting authors like Dr. Finnegan, And also the price points on academic books, they're really working hard to bring those into the more accessible range. And so right now I'm looking at the University of Illinois Press website for the book, and I've linked it in the show notes. So anybody, you can just open up the app where you're listening or the website and click right on the book title. And you'll see that the paperback version of this book is $23 and the ebook is $15. So the, we, the price points are great. So if you're not interested in a copy of the book, these are great gifts. I think this um, will be coming out just in time for Father's Day. So I actually plan on getting a copy and sending it to my grandfather. But another very cool thing to do is to buy a copy for your local library and donate it. Because then people without the means and accessibility to get these kinds of books for themselves have them at the local library and their budgets are not what they used to be. So this is a nice thing you can do to keep your local library flush with new, relevant, interesting work that can circulate for years to come. So thinking about our legacy, thinking about Kara's legacy, right? Um, Getting the book into the library is is just as cool a way to pay for the work um, if you've enjoyed the interview. So Kara, is there anything else you want to tell everyone before we sign off?
1: No, I think that's it. I hope people like the book and uh, appreciate the interview. And um, it was a really fun project. And you're a great interviewer. And I really appreciated (laughs) the way you dug into some really um, interesting questions.
0: Yeah, well, I try, as Sarah Palin would say, I try not to do the gotcha questions, but I try to at least show that I've read the book, right? That's the, that's the work. <laughs> so, well, thank you for coming. Exactly. It, I mean, with a book like this, it makes my job super easy. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Dr. Finnegan, for joining us. Everyone, stay safe. Enjoy the summer. Get your vaccine if you haven't already. Take good care of yourselves and each other, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.